So I'm going to invite you, if you would open your Bible to Genesis 35, that's where we're going to consider together. Genesis 35. I'm going to read, starting in verse 9, Genesis 35, 9 down through 15. And I chose these verses because I think that they do the best. They're near the end of Jacob's life. I'm going to explain in a moment why we're studying Jacob. They're near the end of his life, and I think that they're the best we can get at a summary that gives us the full picture of what his life means and what role he plays in the redemptive plan of God. Before I read that, though, I just want to remind you or to sort of reorient us. Some of you are traveling or have been in or out and you haven't been around, and I don't know how much we've caught up virtually. It's one of the deficits in these days. I don't know how much we've caught up or not. But the last couple of weeks, we've been diving back into Genesis. Before the pandemic, before we took a detour into the sojourning hope that, gives, that we're given in 1 Peter, we had spent a lot of months in the book of Genesis. And what I want to do is next week we're going to start back with the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. That'll take us through. Joseph becomes the, the main character of this part of the story through the rest of the book. But before diving right back in, we thought we'd take a few weeks, and we've done that now, two weeks, this will be the third, to help us remember what is it that we were learning what are we studying in Genesis? And so a couple of weeks ago, I tried to figure out, how do I summarize the first 11 chapters of Genesis? It's really a kind of primeval history. It's before the patriarchs. But we learn and we remember that the biggest questions and answers of all of life Scripture gives to us in the beginning of Genesis, it reminds us that God is, and that because He is, all else exists, that we are accountable to Him. It gives us an accounting for the sin in our own hearts and our own circumstances, but also the seeds of redemption. Genesis 3, God promises, even in the midst of doling out the consequences for sin, He promises that one day, through the seed of the woman, that the serpent's head would be stomped. I had to kill a snake a couple of weeks ago, was trying to be around our garage. One, I felt very southern. Two... I thought of the passage of Genesis 3 as I chopped off its head, and I'm sorry. If you love snakes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have thought through more of how sensitive you are. But nonetheless, that's what God promises to do. So it's biblical in a sense, taking care of snakes in that way. And God's promise to take care of the snake in that way in Genesis 3 is the first place that we understand that God's making of us and our image-boundness to Him is going to be dealt with redemptively. And then how do we summarize the mercy that comes to humanity through Noah and his ark? And all of this history in Genesis 1 through 11, setting up the stage for what the rest of the Bible is going to be about, which is God relentlessly pursuing and redeeming His people. Last week, we saw that the redemptive plan of God starts out with one person, And Brian taught through a passage in Romans that describes how the covenant, the promise of redemption that God made to Abraham was going to extend down through Isaac, his offspring. And now this third week, our goal is to consider and look at the life of Jacob, who is now the grandson of Abraham, who was first called of God and given the promise that the redemptive plan was going to come to fruition in this family. And it's Jacob's life that we are going to attempt to consider in its totality and its fullness today. And I chose this section, verse 9 through 15 of Genesis 35, because I think it's going to give us 
the best foundation for considering his life. So let's read together. I'm going to start the ninth verse, Genesis 35. If you have a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to take it out and to follow along as I read. This is God's Word. Genesis 35, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again. That word again is going to come into play significantly as we consider his life. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. I want to ask that you pray with me. We pray because we have read God's word and we need his help to consider it properly. I want to ask that you pray with me that we get low to remember that our confession, in fact, the the true confession of God's people down through the ages has been that Scripture is given to us and it is the very Word of God. We've not come today as critics. We're not above, certainly. We're not even alongside. We're not partnering with these words. We have come to humble ourselves, to receive God's instruction, and then to organize and to live our lives accordingly. And so I want to ask you to please pray with me as much as we can that the Spirit of God gives us ears to hear and helps us to understand. So let's pray. God, we thank you for gathering us here today. We're not an impressive bunch. We're not here because you need us. We're not even here in perfection. We've come with doubts, and we're certainly distracted. There's things that have troubled us. God, we constantly fight against the desires of the flesh. We're going to have confusion, probably. But we also trust and are confident that you've called us here. We are your people. You're our Father. And so I ask that you'd give us joy. Give us an anticipation of meeting with you that we would revel in and delight in your presence. We ask, Spirit of God, would you help us to live according to our confession? We confess that these are the very words of God, that they're life for us, that they're going to help us. And I pray that in our experience of reading the Bible and meditating on it, that our experience of these things would give us hope and give us the truth that we need, give us the perspective of who you are and who we're called to be in your midst. So specifically, Holy Spirit, would you have your way in us? Would you convict us and change our hearts and our minds? Give us the, the proper sight and vision and dig ears for us. And then when we see and when we hear, God, we don't want to be those who go away unchanged. We want to implement, to apply, to live in the truth that you've given. 
So I pray that, God. I pray that for everyone that's here, even beyond my ability to explain. Spirit of God, do your work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you like biographies? It's a pretty simple question. Autobiographies, regular by the non-autobiographies. In a sense, that's what we're up to today. We're going to look at the biography of the life of Jacob. Zach asked me last week, well, what passage are you teaching? And the first response is, well, about 11 chapters. And I'm thankful that even though I have a lot to tell us or to consider together, that Scripture has given us such a thorough examination of the life of Jacob. It's a biography in many senses. And I love biography. I always have since I was in high school. And I don't know if you've read many biographies or autobiographies, but I remember one of the things that I loved about them from the earliest times. Not only was I fascinated by usually the famous people that I was reading about, I remember telling a friend at one point, I was just young enough and just naive enough to be so excited about this particular fact. Now, it's partially true, but I think you'll see why I was naive. I remember telling my friend, biographies are amazing, and I'm just going to read as many as I can because here's the deal. These people have already lived their life, and they're looking back, and they accomplished all this stuff, and here's the best part. They made a ton of mistakes, so we don't have to make them. The idea was that if I just read enough biographies, if I just had enough information, if I saw the mistakes of people who had come before me, then I could skate through life mistake-free. At least that's what I thought. I remember just thinking, this is, this is a cheat code to life. We're going to figure this out. Further than that, I remember being so prideful as to believe what a combination God and I are going to be. God and all of His power and might and desire for the world, and me, a mistake-free person who's learning from all these biographies, what will stop us? And it turns out that when you live, what you realize is that what people are explaining in biographies is them wrestling with their humanness, wrestling with the idea that they are fallen, and it turns out that there's no other story to be told than flawed people, sinful people, prideful people, bouncing through life on the grace of God. And I bring this up about biographies because as I dive into the life of Jacob, what we're finding in Genesis is we know that Adam and Eve got it wrong. But then Abram is called by God, and you might think, well, Abraham certainly got it right, and then you read some of his story and you realize, wait, he totally didn't get it right. He made a lot of mistakes. Well, certainly then Abraham's mistakes would have been corrected by Isaac, right? And then you read about the story of Isaac, and you realize he, Isaac is just sort of behind the scenes. He's not very proactive. He lets things happen. He makes a ton of mistakes. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, Abraham and Isaac, this is the best we got they're the patriarchs, the heroes. And so maybe you were hoping and you're just thinking, okay, Jacob, I remember the Jacob stories. What we're going to find in the Bible now concerning Jacob is the story of a person who's fixed all the mistakes. He's got the promises, he's got the grace of God, and then he's just going to skate through life. And here's what we're going to have to say at the outset. If I'm going to explain the biography of Jacob and give summary statements saying, what is this about I'm just going to have to remind you and tell you again, if you're looking for a perfect hero who impresses God and who pulls along the apparatus of redemption in the world based on his complete perfection and the force of his morality, we're going to have to look elsewhere. The biographical note, the tone of his whole life is the same as every human being 
And this is going to be a hint for us. The story of redemption in a lot of ways is to prepare us and to long for a perfect sacrifice. And we learn to long for it because none of our heroes, none of the people that God meets with are perfect. Our lesson of Jacob is going to be just like his grandfather and just like his father and just like Adam and Eve and just like every other human being that's ever lived. The story of Jacob is going to be a man sinful and mistaken, interrupted by the grace of God, surprised by the presence of God. That is Jacob's story. I love that we have a biography from him. If I was going to put a little title over the biography of Jacob, this is me saying, well, here's what we could title it and look for. I'm going to use the word persistence. Persistence is going to be the story that we say. Now, you could say, of course, that the renaming that we just read about in Genesis 35 is, is bigger and a bigger concept, and I would agree with you. For now, what I'm going to say is, how do we get to the point where God calls Jacob back, blesses him, and says, I am going to change your name, you're going to be fruitful, you're going to multiply, you'll be a nation, and a company of nations will come for you. How do we get to this point? And in order to get to this point, Genesis 35 is the end of the story of Jacob. We're going to have to go back to the beginning. Jacob, as it turns out, starts his life, like most humans do, as a baby. So what I want to do is I want to go back and consider some of the major points of Jacob's life, and many of these you probably know well, and you think to yourself, oh, I hope we highlight the ones that I love. And I think, as far as I can tell, I got most of the highlights. But let's consider Jacob's beginning. Jacob, as it turns out, as you may well know, was born a twin. I pay special attention to these because I have twins in my family. And Jacob and Esau are born twins, and before they're ever born, there's introduced a kind of there's a prophecy. It's not a kind of prophecy. It is a prophecy, but you realize from the start there's going to be a tension between these two. Jacob and Esau, his twin brother's mother, receives a word that in her womb are twins, but the older will be born and will serve the younger. From the beginning, we realize this is not how things are supposed to go. They're going to be flipped on or they're going to be flipped upside down, flipped on edge. And we read as well that from the beginning, Jacob and Esau, are, they're sort of wrestling with one another in the womb. The best that they can do anyway. There's not a lot of room to wrestle. Like when I was a kid and we cleared all the furniture to get more room when my parents were gone. You know, you need to make good room for jumping off things to wrestle. All they had was the womb, and yet nonetheless, this tension brewing between Jacob and Esau. And then I can imagine the shock and maybe the hilarity of it when the time for birth comes and the midwife reports that Esau is born and born simultaneously, essentially, is Jacob who is holding his heel as he comes. It's right here from the beginning, not only in this prophecy and the tension of wrestling in their room that we start to get the basic characteristics, the things that will mark Jacob's life, because what we find is Jacob, this act of holding the heel, of grasping, he actually gets named for this. I don't know if you like your name or not, but it's often very, very important names in Scripture. And you know what Jacob is named? His, his name basically means one who grasps at the heels, one who nips at the heels. And I think that, I don't think we're being over the top here, it's used in this 
in this instance or in this light many times in his life, what it really can mean is the one who cheats. So you can imagine nipping at heels as, you know, you're racing with someone and you ever have to do laps in gym class or something and you want to beat the person in front of you, so you do that. You ever master the trick where you slap their, you slap their heel into the other one so they stumble and fall? Poor Jacob is named by his parents. How's this for a patriarch, someone who's impressive, someone who's our hero? Oh, what's, what's your baby's name? What's he, what's he going to be marked by? This is one who cheats. Now, Esau didn't get off very well either because apparently Esau was born in a bear costume. He was massively hairy and ruddy, and they named him Esau, which essentially means the hairy one, the heel-grasping cheater and the hairy one are these brothers. It is then shown to us, not only by prophecy, the tension, not only by the wrestling in the womb, not only in the coming out and grasping of heels and in their naming, but their characteristics are given. And Jacob, in the beginning part of his life, is marked not only by what he is, but in contrast to his brother. Esau, the bear-costumed one, is an outdoorsman. He may have been the kind of boy, the child who loves bugs, is constantly sunbaked and a little bit dirty. He grasps for things. He would have been taking magnifying glasses and burning anthills, and he learns to hunt. And then in contrast, we're told from the very beginning, the earliest stages of their life, Jacob, if Esau was everything an outdoorsman should have been, Jacob is everything an indoorsman should have been. He was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And it's these characteristics that set up the stage, this kind of tension behind the scene as we're learning about Jacob, not only what he is, but what he isn't, that leads us to the end of Genesis 25. We've backed up 10 whole chapters now to the beginning of Jacob, And we find is within this one chapter that tension comes to fruition in an exchange between Esau and Jacob. Esau comes in from a hunt and he is famished. This is beyond hangry. I heard someone, I read it somewhere, I don't remember what it was, it was probably like my mom sharing on Facebook or something, when someone said, from the moment I say I could eat, you have 37 minutes until I turn into a different person. Like the idea of you just, you get changed. Esau's beyond the 37 minutes. He's famished. He comes up to his brother, who is cooking, apparently, that this dwelling in tents, this quiet man, Jacob has learned, and he's an accomplished cook. And Esau comes up, and what is framed as, in the beginning here, Esau's folly here in this moment, is also going to introduce us, again by contrast, to Jacob's conniving. In response to his brother's need, Jacob says, yes, I have some food, but it'll cost you. He asks for Esau's birthright. And in his folly and in his anger, Esau says, I don't care, whatever it is, just give it to me and I will give this up. And from the beginning, you might say to yourself, well, man, I don't know what to do with Jacob already. Jacob, who is grasping at heels and who's really the younger, but he's been given this prophecy, and now in the moment of his brother's need, he cheats him out of his birthright? For someone who loves justice, or someone who's looking for perfection, or someone who wanted a hero, you're already off to a, to a bad start with Jacob. And yet, this is the recipient, the conduit of God's promise and redemption. We're given the fact that it's not Jacob's moral perfection that's going to be appealing 
or going to commend Him but God's presence. And that must be the case because right from the start we see His weaknesses. The act of Jacob selling this for such an exorbitant amount, I was reminded of it this week because my kids have been into Calvin and Hobbes. And when I say into, I mean reading every single comic that's ever been produced. My mom gave them for Christmas this wonderful hardback bound three-volume set of these things. And so my life is a constant interruption of children saying to me, have you seen this one? Can I read this one to you? There's one that one of my sons read to me this week where Calvin sets out with a lemonade stand. He sets out at the lemonade stand, and I think it's Susie, who's the constant sort of antagonist in some of these stories, comes up, and she wants to buy lemonade because there's been no one there, but she's stopped in her tracks when she sees the price, $15 for a glass of lemonade. Now, it ends up being a wonderful comic. It's essentially a commentary. You know, the best ones, adults can read them and realize what's being said. It ends up being a commentary on capitalism. But Susie says to Calvin, I don't understand. How can you charge so much for a glass of water? And he says, well, it's supply and demand. And she looks around and says, there's no one here. There's no demand. How can you charge so much for a glass of lemonade? And he says, no, there's plenty of demand. I demand an exorbitant salary. I demand massive profits from my business. Therefore, it's $15. And they go back and forth for a long time, gives a terrible product. But nonetheless, it's the function of supply and demand here that comes into full view. Esau is in famished demand. And Jacob, rather than exercising love, charges him an exorbitant fee. That conniving and trickery comes to into full bloom. This one who cheats, the one who grasps, the one who grabs, it comes into full bloom a couple of chapters later in Genesis 27 with a story I'm sure you're familiar with. When Jacob, now aided by his mother, want to shortcut their way, not only to the birthright, but to the blessing, they come to their father Isaac in failing eyesight, with failing eyesight, and in late stage of life. And they create a strategy by which they steal in an early way the blessing from their, his older brother. All of this conniving, all of this striving, all of this shortcutting marks the early life of Jacob. And we know that in some way this blessing that is given from a patriarch to the son cannot be revoked. There's some details here we don't really understand, and some of us we just want to say, no, no, no just make it right. But nonetheless, the plan of God moves forward not in light of, not because of human perfection and morality, but in spite of it. And if you're not comfortable with that storyline yet, you haven't read enough of the Bible. Here's the way God's going to have to save in spite of us. That's just the way it's going to work. Redemption, salvation is of the Lord or it is nothing. And we read these stories and we say to ourselves, how does Jacob, the the younger, not the older. How does Jacob, the heel grasper, how does Jacob, the one who demands such a high price for his brother's stew, how does Jacob, who cheats his own father, how does he become the patriarch, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? The answer is God's grace. The other thing that's beautiful about the Bible, not only that the thread of God's grace comes through all the way, but also 
that we realize there are consequences to sin. He doesn't just get away with it. In fact, what we're introduced to later, if you say, well, what happens as, as Jacob sort of comes into manhood and receives this blessing, we realize that all the tension, the seeds of discord that have been sowed in their family, they come home to roost. In Genesis 28, Esau, who is beside himself, weeping over the loss of his blessing, angry at his parents, looking with complete seething anger at his brother for what has been stolen, leaves and runs away from the family. Isaac sends Jacob off to get a wife. And what we're left with in this home, this this patriarchal home, is dysfunction. So, despite Scripture being honest and clear about the failings of these humans, we also are led to see and to realize sin has consequence. This is not a live happily ever after story within their immediate family. There's dysfunction. And many of you understand and realize that the patterns of difficulty and discord in families do indeed lead to dysfunction. Isaac is, is very adamant. He wants Jacob, who has now received the blessing and will inherit this family mantle. He gives him two very important pieces of instruction. One is a blessing. The second is instruction to marry of a godly line. So he sends him off and says, go back to where we came from and find Laban, the family member, and I want you to find a godly wife there, not here, so that you would reject the God of your fathers. And then before he leaves, Isaac gives him a blessing. Now, in some ways, this probably is a sweet moment. It's father to son. You know, it's happening across the world, I'm sure, right now. Dads with tears wiped away as their kids go off to the dorm or go off to... I mean, we haven't gone to, through high school yet, but I remember the moment of kindergarten, right? We'd send him off running down there, and how proud I was. Just, just go and run. And there's some of that, where this is a fatherly blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob. But more than that, we read in Genesis 28 that Isaac is aware of what is happening, that God's redemptive plan, his promise is coming home to Jacob. And so he repeats and says, May God bless you with the blessing of Abraham. He repeats all of the promises that God has given. And so Jacob now sets off on his own. But what has happened is Jacob has all kinds of promise swirling him, swirling around him. He's the promise of conflict with his brother that has come to fruition. He has the reality of a dysfunctional and broken family. He's on the run. He's worried about his brother. He's anxious for it. He doesn't have a wife yet. He just has this massive responsibility of his dad saying, may the blessings of Abraham be upon you. He's wandering in the wilderness. And it's here in Genesis 28 that we find the persistence of God. He interrupts Jacob with his presence. We read in Genesis 28 that Jacob has a dream. Now, dreams are astounding, and it's amazing how many times in Scripture dreams are meaningful. And in this particular case, it's very, very meaningful. It's meaningful for Jacob to realize and to be marked by the presence of God. If he's been marked already by the promise of God, he's now more so going to be interrupted by the presence of God. And do you remember what Jacob sees in his dream? He sees, this is known as the Jacob's Ladder passage. And Paul Riscala taught through this, I think, when we were at this section in Genesis And it's probably true that it's really more of a staircase going up, you know, ziggurats or these kind of religious places of 
of worship there, and maybe he saw something like that. But what delights Jacob's soul is in his dream, like reality, he sees angels coming down back and forth. It's the promise of God's presence, access to heaven, access to him. And it delights his heart, and he wakes up humbled. He marks the place, says, I've met with God. It's his presence that says who I am. You know, dreams are significant, not only in Scripture, but I, I wonder sometimes, well, what are we missing sometimes? Because dreams do seem significant. I had an odd one this week where I, I woke up because of the realness of it. And it wasn't anything even exciting that happened. I just got up and it felt like the kind of moment where I thought, did that just happen? Where, where am I? What is going on? I went down and told my wife. I, it was odd, of course. I was on the campus of FSU somehow. And I came around a corner and I was walking and I saw standing in front of me as clearly as though he was right there in our room is this guy that was our roommate one door over in our first married housing apartment at the University of North Dakota. We were friends with them and loved them and hung out. Haven't seen him for probably 15 years, right? And he's just walking up and he's carrying a little girl. And I'm like, he must be your daughter or something. I don't know. The whole exchange lasted like 30 seconds. It also was weird that it, the pandemic was still, apparently still happening. Because I said to him, the only thing I can remember saying is, I wish I could hug you, bro. Like, we just can't. And then we just stared awkwardly for a moment. And I woke up thinking like, this is real or happening. And people have already told me, and I probably should. Maybe I should reach out to him. I, I don't think it's like a Jacob kind of thing. But the reality is, is that God comes to Jacob in a dream that's just that real, so real that Jacob wakes up a changed man. He wakes up elated by God's presence. God meets him. He interrupts him in a dream. You know, the crazy things about dreams, you can't go to bed at night and say, tonight I'm going to dream about, I mean, who would make up these dreams? Dreams interrupt you in a certain way. And what we see from the beginning to show us, I think, that, that Jacob does not have a special line to God where he can just demand of God his presence, but God is going to persist. He's going to pursue him. Jacob, in the midst of his wandering, is met by God's presence. And Jacob is a different man. He's marked by God's presence. I think that for many of us, being marked by God's presence is probably going to mean we're going to look back at our stories and the way that we're going to tell them is not, well, here's what happened. I eventually got better and better and better. I was more and more and more moral. And then finally, I just said to God, show up here and now, and that's how I met him. Now, for many of us, what we're going to tell is the story of being interrupted by God's presence, of having a conviction over sin that you didn't really ask for, of having a conversation with a neighbor or a friend that you didn't really ask for, of being born into a family where from the cradle you were taught the gospel. You see, God wherever he will mark people by his presence, is going to do so on his own terms. And we see that so clearly in Jacob's life. Later, in the beginning of Genesis 35, Jacob is going to say, as he goes back to Bethel, which we'll talk about the story of him wrestling with God in a minute, he's going to say of God, let's go back there, and I want to make an altar and worship there, because God answers me in my moment of distress. And this line is going to mark his life maybe more than any other. He says, God has been with me wherever I have been. God has been with me wherever I have been. And I resonate with Jacob's life. One, because of his failings. He, can't, he cannot avoid the mistakes of his grandfather and father. But what we find is that he is discovered by God again and again and again. 
He's discovered by God. He looks back and he says, no, that that wasn't me. I didn't do that, but I can see that God was with me wherever I have been. He takes that understanding into meeting Laban. He has this reunion finally with his family, and he shows up. He's without a wife. He knows now he has this promise of Abraham. Remember Abraham, father of nations, the childless one. Brian talked about this last week. So now a single man is going off to find a wife and thinking, well, I better get to this family thing if I'm going to fulfill this promise. So he does what he knows to do, not, you know, go into the club. He goes off to this family, and I guess he just shows up and says, hello, I am Jacob. I'm a part of your family. I have the inheritance of Abraham, father of many nations. Uh, do you have any daughters? I mean, I guess that's what it, I wouldn't recommend this now, but apparently that's what happens. He just shows up. You have any daughters? The good news is Laban says, I have a daughter. In fact, I have two. And for those of you who have paid attention and know Jacob's life, you know that this turns into a whole thing as well. If you wanted a neat and tidy story, if you said, okay, the presence of God found Jacob. He's a changed man now. All those mistakes are behind him. All the cheating and the conniving and the things going sideways and dysfunction, that's behind him. I have a story for you. It turns out that Jacob gets a kind of comeuppance, that what goes around comes around, and Laban cheats him. I don't know what the exchange looked like, but, but essentially Jacob says, yes, I want a wife, let's go for this. And then, kind of like Calvin in the lemonade story, and definitely maybe like Jacob when Esau comes and says, I need stew, I don't know how the negotiations go, but if you thought curfew was bad trying to date a girl, the father says, here's the thing, yes, you can marry my daughter, seven years of indentured servitude is all it'll take. Amazingly, Jacob says, sure. He works for seven years. Again, we don't understand. The human details of these stories sometimes don't make any sense. How in the world God works about redemption through and in spite of human circumstances, I have no idea other than that he's great and gracious. But here's some of the human circumstances. Seven years is up. There's a wedding ceremony, excitement, joy, consummation of marriage. It tells us that Jacob wakes up in the morning and alas, surprise, the wrong woman. This is not a hero. I mean, you'd want to shake Jacob and say, who, who are you and what are you? You're not, you're not paying attention to your life. Were you drunk? He's tricked. The cheater is cheated. He goes back and he says, well, I'm not content with this. And then he multiplies the problems and the dysfunction and says, I'll work another seven years, but right now, instead of one wife, I want two. And I'll tell you, there will be conflict. The Bible is honest about sin. It gives it in all of its fullness. It doesn't pretend that somehow the people and the characters of the Bible are perfect. There's only one who's perfect. He's the hero of the Bible, Jesus. It doesn't pull any punches, but it also thankfully shows us the consequence. Leah and Rachel, sisters, polygamous wives of Jacob, will have tension and conflict for the rest of his life and their life together. The family will be marked by consequence over this trickery back and forth. As we get to Genesis 31, we see that Jacob is back at it again. Remember, he's been given the promise of God. He's been pursued by God. He's been marked by his presence, interrupts in praise of God, but he still wrestles with his fallenness and his name haunts him. We find out in Genesis 31, I don't know if he's bitter over the whole Leah and Rachel situation or not, but Jacob essentially finds a way to cheat in business. He discovers a mating process 
by which he can take and create flocks of the most strong, wonderful animals and leave all of the weakest and the dying ones to his father-in-law. Now, upon discovery of this process, he does not go to his father-in-law and say, hey, let me share you this info with you. We can all be rich. But instead, he leverages it against his own family for his personal gain. And this creates such contention and discord in the family that he has to flee. And Laban says, leave here from me. You've become too powerful. You cannot stay. Why is Jacob a hero again? Only because he's marked by God's persistent grace in his life. No other reason. These are not wonderful stories. And yet, there's something about Jacob that binds us to him. And it's perhaps this next part of his story. Jacob now, second time fleeing, he leaves his original family because of the conflict there, and he has to go find a wife. And in the moment of his distress, he has a dream and celebrates God's presence. Now, being sent away from his father-in-law, Jacob, the cheater one, the grasping of heel one, is on a journey. He's nervous and he's anxious. He knows he's going to have an encounter with Esau. For all he knows, his bloodthirsty brother. And it's in the moment of his distress we have the exchange, the, the thing that is perhaps most popular concerning Jacob. He wrestled once with his brother in the womb, and then in Genesis 32, we have an account where unexpectedly, not initiated by him, he is greeted by a personification of the presence of God himself, and Jacob wrestles with God. And it's in the midst of that wrestling where Jacob mirrors, again, remember the title of his story, title of his book, his biography, Jacob is commended for his persistence. He will not let the presence of God go. He recalls and remembers what it's like to be in God's presence. He is now here experiencing it, and he grasps him. The one who grasps and who cheats now grasps the presence of God in the person of God and wrestles with him. And it is there in Genesis 32 that we first hear of the renaming of Jacob, reiterated in the fullness in Genesis 35, which we read And then also, he is blessed. It's not spelled out, but he is blessed. What we have found in the story of persistence in Jacob is though he is not perfect and he is failing, Jacob proves to be persistent. Persistent in this, that he wants the presence of God. He recognizes God's blessing when it's in front of him, and he says, nothing else will give me meaning. Nothing else significant is worthwhile in my life. I must persist. What Jacob says in the moment of wrestling with God is the thing that everyone at their soul must come down to. I must have God or nothing else will satisfy. Jacob is most persistent in that most important lesson. He can have nothing but the satisfaction of the presence and the promise of God. In the story of Jacob, there is a person who persists. Now, sometimes this is not good. He persists in his conniving. He persists in demonstrating his war against the flesh. His sin keeps popping up. But more than that, there is a person, Jacob, who persists in grasping and holding on to God's presence. And this will mark him. It marks him so much that he walks away from the fight with a limp. More than that, if I say, well, why did I choose persistence? 
I think overriding the entirety of the story, the center, if Jacob's persistence here is a bookend and then his praise is a bookend, it is God's persistence in the center of the whole thing. You know this little promise that came to Abram in a desert, an obscure, unaccomplished man from a pagan place. God says, I am image bound with you and I'm going to give a promise of the covenant. And what we find in the life of Jacob is that despite all their failings, the promise of God will persist. How many times could difficulty arise in human circumstances where the promise of God could be derailed or he would have pulled it back? Abraham is childless with a barren wife. He doesn't stop the promise. Isaac is very neglectful in his leadership of his family, has dysfunction between his twin boys. It does not stop the promise. The younger rather than the older receives it. It doesn't stop the promise. And Jacob now receives in fullness. In Genesis 35, your name was Jacob, the one who strives or cheats. You are now Israel, which is the one who contends with God. More than that, one who has fought with him and one who has received from God. The promise of God, despite all of the imperfection of every one of these characters, it's a joke almost. Here's the thing we can learn. God's promises are yes and amen forever and ever and ever, will never fail. There is no change or turning in Him. God persists. In moments of weakness, in moments of I don't know, in moments of fear, in moments of anxiety, God comes. He persists. I think there's another lesson, though, to learn and something that marks Jacob and what I want to emulate, what I long to be like. You know, the interesting thing about Jacob is I think that for someone, you know how there's some people who are a little more charismatic in their, in their faith? Do you know what I mean by that when I say charismatic? Some of you are churchy folks and you know full well, you know exactly well. And maybe if you're not so spiritual or haven't been in church for a long time, when I say charismatic, there's a group of Christians who, generally speaking, are, are more exuberant, perhaps, in their expressions of faith. They long for, with a distinctness that is so sweet and wonderful, the presence of God. And then more than that, they're often marked by interpretations of dreams or experiences. And I read in the life of Jacob, this Old Testament patriarch, if you're a charismatic person, he's your guy. Jacob is wrestling in the womb with prophecies and words over his life. He's then having dreams that he interprets and erupts in exuberant praise when he wakes up in the morning. He wrestles with the very presence of God and says, I must have you or I have nothing and die. And then you know what else he's doing? He's always claiming and naming things. This here, right here, put a rock, anoint it with oil, let's worship. I long for a little of this. I want to learn from Jacob in this. You know what persists in Jacob's life despite all of his failings? When he sees and receives the promises of God, and when he senses and feels the presence of God, he absolutely persists in exuberant praising of God. It's always changing for him. He's the guy who calls everybody and says, come back to this place. Let's call it Bethel. This is the house of God. Look at this. This is the rock of God. Anointed with oil, let's sing and pray and praise and rest here in God's presence. Jacob is not marked by moral perfection. But what he does get right by the grace of God is that he understands his only hope in life 
is to see the fulfillment of God's promises and to live close to and in connection with God's presence. There's no other hope. It doesn't matter his ancestry. It doesn't matter how much land or how much ill-gotten gain in business he has or how many children, which is a lovely. He's the most full. He has the most full inheritance yet. Not fullness yet, but the most full yet. But none of those things matter. He does not have the presence of God and is praising in that presence. Ultimately, Jacob, who receives the promise that was given not only to Abraham, but even to his grandmother. Remember, Sarah is visited by by God's angel, and he says, from your womb, kings will come. In Genesis 35, where I I opened and we read, it says that from your body, not only will you be fruitful and multiply, and nations will come, but kings will come from your body. Ultimately, there will be a perfect one, a king who comes through the line of Jacob, who will bring all of the promises to fulfillment and will usher you and I, those who are coming after him, whose promise of land and God's presence we will receive. Jacob is one character in the full story of God's redemption culminating in Jesus. This is a gift for us. We should learn these lessons And I'd like to pray that we do. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your careful recording of the lives of your people. We thank you that despite all circumstances and difficulty that you persisted, you constantly sought out, that once you promised, you never let go. And I pray that we would have an experience, an understanding like Jacob has. I pray that we would find ourselves discovered by you. God, I ask for everyone here, would you increase the moments where without looking, without initiative, even without effort, would you interrupt our lives? I pray, God, for the kind of joy that comes with having met with you. I pray specifically for our Sunday mornings. We call this the house of God. This is where we are. It's where we rest. We believe that your presence is here with us. Spirit of God, you've come. Help us to not settle for anything less than joy and praise in your presence. God, we thank you that despite our sins and our failings, that you give us unmerited favor. You've been merciful and kind to us. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.